This podcast is a part of the Carbon Almanac Network of Podcasts. Hi, I'm Imma. I live in Scotland. Hi, I'm Jen and I'm from Canada. Hi, I'm Ola Banji and I'm from Nigeria. Hello, I'm Liki and I live in Paris. Hey, I'm Rod. I'm from Peru. Welcome to Carbon Sessions, a podcast with carbon conversations for every day with everyone from everywhere in the world. In our conversations, we share ideas, perspectives, questions, and things we can actually do to make a difference. So don't be shy and join our Carbon Sessions because it's not too late. Hi, I'm Vicky. Hi, I'm Brian. Hi, I'm Christina. Today we're going to talk about uh, biomimicry. So I brought in a definition from Biomimicry Institute. Biomimicry is a practice that learns from and mimics the strategies found in nature to solve human design challenges and find hope. Sounds good? That sounds good. Yeah. I like hope. I like hope. And I would like to add a comment because I I was not familiar with biomimicry before we saw this film on, what is the name of the company? Interface, the company. I wasn't aware that your biomimicry was something that existed. And then I looked up and actually it's a technology that has existed for probably a full billion years because um, nature has been fighting against the environment for so long. So imagine all the knowledge has been acquired by nature as a living body over all these years. So it's really, really powerful. Yeah, I agree. You know, it's, I'm going to go off on a little tangent uh, <laughs> that's sort of interesting. You know, if we think about evolutionary pressures, right, it's about different things in nature, uh, trying different things, right? Like, so uh, mutations lead to different uh, styles uh, and phenotypes and how things are expressed, how, how a plant works or an animal. And then the environment creates pressure. Some of those succeed and some of those don't. And we have change and adaptation to the environment and circumstances. And, and the solution that ends up being the most efficient, you know, ends up passing on into the future generations more, right? And here we are on the eve of some of these interesting uh, things happening in the, in the world due to AI, where all of a sudden in this virtual space, we can go through a lot of tests of something to see what works and doesn't work. And it's sort of creating this ability to see how things evolve in this AI computer virtual space faster than we can in nature by modeling it out to see what succeeds. But here we are, we've got, even with the most powerful computers, they still can only look at so many things over time. We've got around us in nature millions and actually billions of years of samples and testing and which thing works and which thing doesn't work. And we've got the, the solutions sitting around us. And, and we can, it's so interesting to see examples of this and us learning how to use something that's been adapted to solve problem A and learn to adapt to it to solve problem B. So I'm excited to talk about my first one. Biomimicry is really exciting to me. So thanks for picking this topic. Yeah. The first one I want to go to first, I have to also on the topic of biomimicry, give a huge shout out to Patrick 
Ari, um, who does a podcast for the BBC called 30 Animals That Made Us Smarter. And I remember when this podcast first started, I listened to the first episode and this sort of lead up to it. I was like so excited about it. And I think I've listened to every single episode along the way. I really encourage our listeners to go listen to it. It's, it's a lot of fun. He, he does a, a wonderful job with that podcast. And I'm going to borrow from two of the things I learned from his podcast over time in what we talk about today. So the first one I wanted to chat about was, it's an episode called Could Cows Help Solve the World's Sewage Problem? And growing up raising cattle myself, uh, this was one that like I found particularly interesting. Cattle are a type of uh, mammal called a ruminant. They have multiple stomachs that sort of go through this very interesting process of how they digest their food. And in the interest of time, even though I'm excited about all four stomachs that cows have, I won't take us through the entire journey of the four stomach process, but I will summarize it to say this wonderful uh, resident of the city of Bangalore, Tharun Kumar, learned about how cow's stomachs works and then was living with a, a very big problem there in Bangalore, which is untreated human sewage, human waste, poop, pee, all, all that kind of good stuff or not good stuff, maybe. And the impact it was having in an untreated raw fashion flowing into their waterways, lakes, and, and things there around where he lived in Bangalore and, and where he was raising his family. And he ended up leveraging this knowledge of how cows' stomachs work and working with uh, the Biomimicry Institute to help put together this idea of how to have a different kind of wastewater treatment, essentially a sewage plant. And it uses this idea of in most sewage plants and, wa and human waste processing, we've got an aerobic, meaning there's air involved and oxygen consumption involved kind of bacteria, like certain kinds of bacteria that are they're consuming both oxygen and sort of chewing up all the waste product, right? And helping process it. And so that waste has to be aerated and stirred and moved. And there's all this, which takes a lot of energy right? And physical facilities to create that process to do it. And, you know, in highly populated locations uh, without all the economic resources at play to be focused on this, sometimes that's not happening and you have untreated human waste and which can create a whole bunch of health problems. However, the way cow's stomachs work, and this is where the biomimicry comes in, is they have four different stomachs and a sort of process where the grass they chew is first goes into the first stomach and that stomach processes it and softens it up with some acids and some uh, and liquid. And then it comes back into the cattle, the cow's mouth, steer or cow, and is chewed up. That's the cud we sometimes refer to as like, you know, they're chewing the cud again. And then it goes back down into the second stomach. Now in the second and third and fourth stomach process, it's in a sealed area where it's, it's not aerobic. There's not fresh air in these stomach cavities. And so the kind of bacteria that uh, have evolved to be part of that ecosystem for breaking down the cellulose and, uh, and all the food that the, the cow has eaten is a type of anaerobic bacteria. So they're operating without additional oxygen, right? And so... Now, 
you think through this, so the, the food comes in and is processed in this first chamber and this, or the second stomach and then moves to the third stomach and then the fourth stomach and then through large colon, small colon, or maybe whichever order the colons are in, and then out the back and into cow patties, right? So now this, you know, very interesting individual, Tarun Kumar, uh, worked and created this system. They experimented and created a system where they are now processing human waste and they've built over 50 of these very sustainable sewage plants that don't require aeration and don't require a lot of that mechanical movement. They're not consuming oxygen and they're moving the human waste through a process that goes through several chambers, four chambers, just like the cow's stomach process, where there's different settling ponds. And then there's these anaerobic chambers. They're sealed off. They're not being aerated. And the anaer and they're, they're essentially seeding these with cow poop, to, which has these anaerobic bacteria already in them to get the process going. And out the end of this sewage process comes clean water, clean, drinkable water comes out the other end of the sewage process, right? And yet there, there's almost no, there's no mechanical parts. There's very little power needed. There's, there's not chemicals being used. So the process is a wildly more sustainable process than the, a typical uh, modern mechanical and chemically driven sewage processing plant. It does take some more physical space. It sort of like stretches over more time. But now they're working to actually design and build these larger footprint processes because their sealed uh, spaces, as opposed to most sewage plants, are open air, right? Because they've got all this air that's getting cycled into the fluid. Now these are actually sealed. So they're actually building them under housing developments where they can be buried under the ground and sort of take up space that you're not using for that it, it's okay to use that ground for the space. So anyway, so this is like, to me, a really exciting one because it's both a cool example of biomimicry and like learning from how we pro a, a steer processes their food and leveraging this anaerobic bacteria. And it's also so much more sustainable and it's making the place, at least where these plants are being built, a healthier place. So it's like biomimicry that's, like just really checking all the boxes as far as I'm concerned. So really, really excited to share that one. I believe that this is still been researched and not not applied, not in use any. No, they're the the sewage plants you mean? Yeah, the sewage plants. No, they've built they have working But people are drinking water from the sewage plant. Yeah. Oh. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. So, Christine, I know, I think you, yes. you're up next. You're going to tell us some interesting things about fungi or fungi or fungi. Uh, yes, I'll go one step up uh, into fungi. And when I was learning permaculture, I got really excited about mushrooms and fungi because they were incredible solutions for toxic spills and different uh, heavy metal uh, cleanup and all those things. So, but I, for today, I picked up one fungi, which is connected. I felt like it's very closely connected to carbon almanac. And this fungi is alternaria fungi. And it sequestrates carbon dioxide 
by forming calcium carbonate through the assimilation of nitrate, which sounds very scientific. But basically, as a result of this process, the carbon dioxide is exhaled from their respiration gets converted to solid calcium carbonate in the soil before it has a chance to escape into the air as carbon dioxide gas. I love this solution instead of mechanical and all these uh, future big factories sequestered carbon dioxide. I think this uh, fungi knows much better what to do. That's, that was exciting for me. And one thing, I have a question for our listeners about this uh, development. The uh, article I got it from was updated in August 2016. Now, the original article was in Bioresource Technology in 2010. And so my question is, how come we know all these things and they're not happening in big scale? That's a good question. Leaky, I feel like your story helps us understand that a little bit more. Mm, partly, I guess, maybe. But okay, my story starts with something which I find very, very beautiful, which is a lotus flower. The, you know, those beautiful flowers you sometimes see in ponds. But I'm not going to talk about the flower itself. I'm going to talk about its leaves. You know, those sometimes you see the very, very big leaves. And um, actually, those leaves are sometimes used in Asia to cook rice. And um, they, they use it as play to have food. And, and um, I suspect that there's some properties uh, associated with the leaves. And when I was researching for this conversation, I just typed biomimicry examples on Google and um, and I found this lotus leaves properties, which I find absolutely amazing. And basically, uh, lotus leaves have self-cleaning properties. And the reason why it has self-cleaning properties is you know, the surface, the, the texture um, of it, the surface of the leaf is very specific and it has some orientation. It's a mix of the shape on top of it is it's really at the nano level. I'm not going to share that with you because I'm not going to describe the shape of the leaf on the podcast. But I was so, you know, I got really overwhelmed by this discovery of biomimicry because um, I've read that, you know, the application of this technology will be probably used in, you know, um, in places that requires a lot of cleaning, like uh, hospitals, like, you know, factories, with processing factories. And so this is great because um, it uses a lot of detergent and a lot of water and also a lot of resources to clean all these places. But then I was thinking of today's podcast episode that was out today, which is about laundry. And I thought, wow, yeah, but you know, what if we can wear clothes that have this, you know, this, the same properties, the same features? Because one of the things that we, uh, we talk about with Wola Benji is that laundry, haha, uses a lot of water and resources. So what do we do to make laundry uh, have a, a small impact on the environment? One of the things that I keep saying is that, oh, don't wash your clothes too often. But, you know, it's sometimes it doesn't smell good. <laughs> and, um, and, and one of the reasons why uh, you, know, you need to wear the clothes is because the fiber in your clothes absorb you know, the, the dirt and the, and the odors and everything. 
So I thought, wow, wouldn't it be great that if we can, you know, there's a fiber, there's a textile or, you know, that can use this technology. And I started researching it because, you know, I work in fashion. So I was starting to research it and see, okay, well, if it does not exist, oh, maybe I can invent it or work on it. So I started researching where, where this innovation or this discovery is at. And I found something very, very interesting. And I think it will help us understand, you know, and probably answer to your question, Christina. You know, we know that, you know, about what we're waiting for to use this technology or this innovation or this uh, observation. Actually, it's a long process because um, these research papers on lotus leaves, your habit, all these properties has been probably written in your know, 2010, 2015, something like that, and has been published at that time as well. And actually, I think it was quite quick because um, in 2016, and I'm talking about Europe because uh, I'm in Europe. And so, uh, so in 2016, there was um, the first step of this, I don't know if I should say rolling out technology or rolling out upscaling the, um, this observation into industry is to first build the laser technology to replicate the surface and, um, and to build the membrane. So the first step was to build this technology and build machinery to replicate this. It's been quite successful because after the full years of building this machine, they have validated that this is something what we can do. And uh, we're talking about something that's like at the nano level. So it's, it requires new machines to be built. And so in 2016, you know, the building of, of this laser machine project has started. And then in 2020, so four years, for, for um, this project to grow by building a consortium or innovation center to build the ecosystem. So you have um, large companies, of course, but you also have research centers. You also have universities. You have uh, innovation hubs. You also have the finance, um, you know, the bank, everything. Because, because when, you, when you have an innovation, you also need to build the ecosystem way to you know, it's just for, for it to operate and, and to scale. And it's very interesting. And actually, if you're in Europe, or actually, I think you can't even try to apply it if you're not in Europe. If you're interested uh, with this technology, um, they have built something quite interesting, which they call an innovation. Okay, the, the name of the, of the new entity, the consortium that I have built, is called New Skin. And it's the innovation ecosystem to accelerate the industrial uptake of advanced surface nanotechnologies. They have open, open innovation test bed and um, you can apply similar to, you know, to the James Webb telescope. You, if you have a project, you can apply and say, okay, I'd like to use this test bed because I have an idea and I would like to test it. And then, and then at the same time, there are also other industries involved trying to understand how this can be upscaled. So that gets me very excited because um, it takes time. First, you know, between the time that the research has been done or the observation has been done, but there's uh, people working on it and there's money involved, there are industry involved. So that makes me very, very hopeful because, um, you know, sooner or later we'll see it in real life and we'll see it in hospitals and uh, we can also see it in, uh, in luxury because, um, you know, our, like in you know, watchmaking, you know, and all this precision, technologies, industries, this sounds really fantastic. This does sound really fantastic. I find it very interesting to see how 
how, you know, from an observation, we get something that scales, you know, build infrastructure for it to scale. Yeah. I mean, there is so much effort to sort of go through that. What Leaky, I wanted to like tag in one other piece that you didn't, I don't think you sort of really touched to, but it's like, in addition to this being a cool innovation, it's an innovation that's an alternative to something which is it's the the other thing is problematic, meaning coatings that go into clothing now. Like there's a lot of different kind of coatings that go into clothing to keep them stain resistant and those things, which are have many of them have personal health detriments and environmental detriments um, because of the process used to create those coats. So like if this technology can can both improve and innovate and make better and help replace something that's detrimental, that's a double win. Definitely. And those detriments gets released when the clothes gets washed. Yeah, correct. Into the water stream. Yeah, yeah. in the water streams. And that ends up in, you know, in, in waterways. Yeah. yeah, I love it. That's a great one. Yeah. Wow. Well, I think I... I've got one more that I, you know, again, as it, any of our listeners, I'm sure can sort of tell, like, this is a, a favorite topic for me. <laughs> and you tell. <laughs> um, I don't know, growing up on a farm with all these different animals and, and like, I think that's just part of where, like, my love of, of seeing things and, like, figuring out how to, like, reuse the idea in another way comes from. So uh, this uh, well, I grew up on a farm and we had a variety of animals. We never had camels. But I want to talk about some cool things coming out of camels, or rather in and out of camels and how that happens. And again, a huge shout out and thanks to the 30 Animals That Made Us Smarter podcast. You all, everyone, please go check it out. The link will be in the show notes. Um, it's a phenomenal podcast. I'm sure you'll enjoy it uh, as much as I do. So camels... They also happen to be ruminants, um, so uh, they also go through an interesting digestion process. But instead of talking about that today, I want to talk about actually how they breathe through their nose. And the way they breathe through their nose, you know, while we humans as mammals have sort of, you know, principally two main breathing uh, passageways, the camels have these sort of very bifurcated, not bifurcated means two, like, like these many different pathways that move through their, their nostrils so that um, in summary, and I'm not doing this perfect uh, justice, but in summary, as air moves in, hot desert air, the air moves across um, a wet mucous membrane, a whole series of different pathways, many sort of little mini nostril branches that move up through um, the, the camel's snout and it moves across this wet mucous membrane section that has little uh, hairs and things that sort of create a ton of surface area that the air is moving across and because it's moist a few things happen one the moisture uh, in the nostril is converted into uh, moisture in the air the hot dry air that's coming in from the desert that creates a cooling effect right? Just like when we sweat and our sweat is evaporated into the air, that evaporative effect creates a cooling effect that helps cool down the, uh, the air and helps cool down that they're breathing in. So it's coming in hot. It, the air is getting cool as it goes through. It's actually also cooling down the flesh nearby, which is where the blood is flowing past that up to the brain. So it helps keep their brain 
extra cool. So to keep it an optimal operating temperature, which for brains is even more important than most of the rest of your organ. And so that one thing that's awesome happens. So the air is cooled down as it goes down into the camel's lungs and chest cavity. And then as they exhale, so that air is now both humidified, so it's not drying out the lungs and it's cooled down. So it's not heating up their inner chest cavity as much. And then as they exhale, it goes through a different pathway where there's a whole process in this part without getting into the science, I won't explain as well, but it's essentially doing the reverse and it passes it through again, a high surface area process where they've got a, a sort of series of um, things happening in the nostril that is absorbing that water back out of the exhale breath. So if we all think about for a minute, like being in a cold, wintry kind of location and you breathe out and you see that big sort of what looks like a steam cloud, it's a water vapor cloud as you breathe out because when we exhale, it's very humid. And then that is getting chilled quickly in the air and turns into this like cloudy thing in front of us in, in cold weather. So camels, as they are exhaling, are recapturing up to 70% of that moisture that they're, that normally we as a human, that would all be exhaled as lost moisture, which is a significant amount of where the water we drink, right? Here's my water. As we drink water and we hydrate our body, we lose a lot of it through respiration, through how we breathe out and losing our moisture that way. And it's not all through perspiration, sweating. So there are some people, and, and Leaky, this is like a, an interesting sort of compliment to this. There can be for some kinds of biomimicry and technology, lots of um, tech, different technologies needed to come together as you were describing, to help execute on that biomimicry, right? Like nanoscale construction, printing, cutting, like that. There's a whole level of many other technologies that have to be developed and perfected to achieve that biomimicry. In this case, part of what I love about this uh, example is there are um, some architects who were experimenting with this concept um, and they were doing it with very simple little boxes where they essentially created airflow, book two directions like inhaling and exhaling. Then again, in the interest of time, go check out the, pod, the other podcast for the full context. But here, what they did is they basically proved using just uh, uh, you know, physical construction materials and things like water dripping on burlap you know, to recreate this process flow and they were able to demonstrate very quickly that, oh, we can recreate this uh, example of how physics is working to both as air comes in, cool it, and then as it goes back out, take back out that moisture as it, as it leaves the, you know, in this case, a box. And so they played around with it. It worked. They used, they put some things up on the south side of buildings there in, um, somewhere in the Middle East. I don't remember the country it was in at the time. And so they went through this process, very interesting. And now they're starting to deploy this already in like full-scale buildings that are being built where they're creating an exhale part of the building up high in the roof where the air is moving naturally through convection up and out of the building, but they're recapturing moisture. But then down in a different area, they're breathing in 
outside, external, hot, dry air, but going through this cooling process, right? Which for me growing up, like these were sometimes sort of called swamp coolers. That was like a, a phrase for sort of using water to uh, the evaporation of water to cool air. But it's this specific methodology of how they're doing it that's creating cool air coming into a building with no, without pumps, air conditioning, condensation, electricity, like all these things, you know, are, it's not consuming nearly as much energy to cool a building. And so places in location, hot locations like Las Vegas or Abu Dhabi or all throughout, you know, this sort of very hot, dried parts of the world can look to this new technology and their architecture inspired by the inhalation and exhalation of the camel nostril. Um, so coming to a building near you, camel nostril cooled air. This is fascinating. I, uh, yeah, I, I was familiar with the swamp coolers, but for me, what's really interesting is the retaining moisture in, uh, from the air because that was escaping. And that reminded me, there was a exhibition a while ago by Bruce Mao and called Massive Change. And one of the pieces in that exhibition was very large, almost like a beehive that you can put in the desert and it will create about half a gallon or gallon of water in Sahara Desert. And so I was thinking, oh, that's, that's where the capture of the, that's interesting, fascinating. Yeah. Yeah, I think that nature is really cool. There's so much we can learn from Mother Nature. And I really think that we can make so many more interesting conversations on the topic of biomimicry. Yeah. We should do that again, really. I think so. I think yeah. I think you're right, Lady. We've got we've got to revisit this one. There's so many more things out there. Yeah. Well, and maybe we list we ask our listeners, you know, what are their examples of biomimicry that they've seen in their lives or, or that they're dabbling with in their professional or experimental side of their life? Um, yeah, maybe maybe we'll learn about some new things from our listeners. And if they want to talk about this on the show, they're welcome. Yeah. Welcome to the conversation. Well, this has been a lot of fun. Thank you for suggesting this topic. Leaky, was it you that suggested this one? Christina. Where is Christina? Oh, Christina. Well, thank you. What a great one. That's my one of my favorite design pieces in all different design theories. So we should definitely do a sequel. Great. Well, thanks, everybody. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Carbon Sessions, a podcast with carbon conversations for every day with everyone from everywhere in the world. We'd love you to join the Carbon Sessions so you too can share your perspectives from wherever you are. This is a great way for our community to learn from your ideas and experiences, connect, and take action. If you want to add your voice to the conversation, go to thecarbonalmanac.org slash podcasts and sign up to be part of a future episode. This podcast is also part of the Carbon Almanac Network. For more information, to sign up for the emails, 
To join the movement and to order your copy of The Carbon Almanac, go to thecarbonalmanac.org. Be sure to subscribe and join us here again as together we can change the world.